And if you will, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up our series, I guess our intermittent series, here in chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verse 12 through verse 18 this evening. So Philippians chapter 2 beginning at verse 12, and I ask that you pay careful attention to God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Our God and our Father, we thank you uh, for your scriptures. We thank you, God, that you have given us uh, your spirit so that we might uh, learn, that we might uh, know you, that we might know truth. God, we ask that you imprint your word upon our hearts. God, speak to us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll remember, I think it was about two weeks ago uh, when we last considered Philippians, we talked about how Paul had been developing the the theme of unity among uh, those who believe in Christ. Uh, We talked about that uh, at the beginning of chapter, sorry, at the end of chapter 1, and then into the beginning of chapter 2, Paul's urgence is called to believers uh, to be unified. Um, And back in chapter 1, Paul explains how suffering, right, because Paul writes this from prison, that's not a good place to be, so his suffering in prison, but also the Philippians' suffering, he mentions that in verse 29 of chapter 1, that that suffering isn't all bad. Obviously suffering is a bad thing, nobody wants to go through it, Uh, but Paul has developed or is, is developing the idea that it's actually an honor to suffer for Christ's sake. And so, in the midst of that suffering that we suffer for Christ, Paul calls the Philippians, he calls us to be of one mind. And that's back in verse 27 of chapter 1, and then verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2. And you'll remember, we talked about that he calls them to this unity on the basis of what Christ has done. So, chapter 2, if you looked at verses 5 through 8, It's on that basis that we are unified. So we don't think well of one another, of others. We don't help and serve others because they deserve it or because you're such a nice, kind, charitable person. We do that. We're humble. We're helpful because that's what Christ has done for us. You don't help and serve and think better of those who have earned it. You do that regardless. And then in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 2, uh, it's a picture of how it all ends. Right? Because Christ humbled himself, 
because he sacrificed himself for others, what's the result? Well, he's now king over all. At one, some point in history, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So that's what we've seen leading up to verse 12. Because there we have a therefore. Right? So in light of what's been going on before, now here's something else. And what Paul does, beginning in verse 12, is he expands on what the Philippians' duty is. Right? He's been calling them to unity. That unity is on the basis of what Christ has done. So now, what should the Philippians do? In light of all what Christ has done for them, what is the Philippians' duty? What is Paul's encouragement? Well, Paul's clear. In verse 12, he tells them to continue to be obedient to God. Right? That's their duty. So in light of what Christ has done, now we are continually obedient. Notice how he doesn't have anything to do with like, what you think about thinking certain things or certain doctrines, or making sure that you think the right way. It's a command to do, to obey. And importantly, this isn't just a random command that Paul come up, come, comes up with. Again, the Philippians' duty is based off of what Christ has done. So just like we have a mind of humility and a mind or a helpful service to others based on what Jesus did for us, in the same way, we obey because Jesus obeyed. If you go back to verse 8, that's what Paul tells us Jesus did, right? He obeyed to the point where he suffered the shame, the misery, the death on the cross. So because of that, or in the same way, we are to be obedient as well. So Paul is encouraging the Philippians to continue in their obedience. And the emphasis here is on the continual part. Right? Because he says they have been obedient when he was with them. But now, also, he wants them to be obedient in his absence. So it's not just one-time obedience, part-time obedience. It's continual obedience that's the key for Paul. Which then leads to that strange comment at the end of verse 12, where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, that's the obedience that they are called to. That's how Paul sums it up. That's what they need to be doing while he is away from them. Now, what does that mean? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I think that this part of the verse can sometimes be misunderstood. And I think in context of what Paul is saying about obedience, that the end of verse 12 isn't a reference to being saved or one's eternal destiny. I think we would all, we, we all agree, I don't think we err too much on the side that we can work our way into salvation. Uh, because obviously, we talk about being saved, or salvation nowadays. Uh, what are we referring to, really? Those who get to go to heaven when they die, right? Or being a real Christian. We know those fake Christians who go to church, do that, but they're not really saved. Right, salvation is often used uh, in reference to our eternal destiny. But Paul's not talking about that. He's not talking about working your way into heaven or doing something that got, you know, to, make, to, to earn salvation. Um, Paul's writing to Christians who are already saved, 
encouraging them to obey God in every circumstance of life. That's what he means by working out your own salvation. Because, as we know, salvation is completely the work of God. Right? Paul says as much in verse 13. And we all know that. So, in verse 12, Paul wants the Philippians to work out for themselves what this reality of being saved will mean in practice. So, what does your salvation look like in your daily life? Because obviously, you're not in heaven right now. So what's the point of your salvation while you await your eternal destiny? So, the phrase, work out your own salvation, isn't meant to contrast our work with God's work, as if we do something, he does something, we do something, when it comes to our salvation, or when it comes to our justification. That's not the point. The point is responsibility. Paul is contrasting their responsibility with his responsibility for them, right? If he were there. Because Paul's clear, he's not there anymore. And he might never be there again. So, in light of that, in light of his prolonged absence, they need to be obedient in all things. Or, Paul's gone, they need to take responsibility for what it looks like to be a part of God's family. They have to work out the implications of their salvation in their daily lives. Paul's not going to be there every step of the way to guide them. And verse 13, Paul doesn't need to be there every step of the way. It's clear, Paul's clear in verse 13, that it's God who works in them. And if you remember back in chapter 1, Paul has told them that it's God who will complete the work in them until the day of Jesus. So it's the power of God that they have, but they need to take responsibility for what their salvation means practically. That's what working out your own salvation means. You're saved. Now go figure out what that looks like. And that's the same. Same is true for us. We need to figure out, we need to work out what being a Christian means, what being a follower of Christ looks like as you encounter the world around you. Because as we all know, when you become a Christian, or just as a Christian, you don't get the handbook for life. Meaning, you don't get the answers to every problem that you're going to face. Now, you get some really good answers, like what verses 9 through 11 say. You get the answer to how it's all going to end, who wins. You get the answer to what verse 13 says, that God is at work, he is the power in you. So we get some answers, but we don't know most of the time how that will play out in an everyday type sense. Kind of like, should I accept this job? Or should I marry that person? Or should I, how should I discipline my children in this particular instance? Or should I go to that church? Should I leave this church? How do I love a brother or sister in this circumstance? In the circumstance. We aren't giving, given those answers all of the time. So what do you have to do? You have to work that out for yourselves. That's what Paul's saying. Now, Paul has said, as we saw in, at the end of chapter 1, he said, stand firm in the truth. 
Right? Don't fear opposition. In chapter 2, he said, be humble, serve others. Right? We know that. We're not left without any marching orders, as it were. But what does that look like, being humble, serving others, standing firm against opposition? What does that look like in each individual circumstance? Well, work that out for yourself. And I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But there is a call to personal responsibility here. And I think sometimes in Christian churches, uh, evangelical uh, churches, we get afraid of this idea that we merit salvation because we don't. That's true. But then there's a lack of call to personal responsibility for Christians, to take responsibility for your own actions, for your own life, for your own failures. Uh, That's a very good thing. It doesn't conflict with that it's God who works. It's God who draws us. It's God who redeems us. Um, But there is kind of a a call to personal responsibility here in in, in verse 12. Uh, Kind of like you've gotten the principles about humility. Paul's told you about unity. You know what Christ has done for you. Verse 13, you have the power of God in you. So now, go work that out for yourself. Go figure out what salvation looks like in the context that God has placed you. Whether it's at your work, with your family, your church body. Go work out your salvation. So there's a call here to accept personal responsibility for our obedience. And one of the things that means, kind of maybe from the the negative or the flip side, is what you shouldn't do is go trying to work out other people's salvation. Don't be looking around, comparing your Christian life, what you do, what you don't do, to other people. Kind of worry about yourself. You be responsible for being humble, for being helpful, because I think this is a, 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 just a human thing, but Christians, we love to try and work out other people's salvation, right? Where we point the finger and say, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't think that. Oh, you go to that church. Or we sit in judgment of the decisions of others as they work out their salvation, and we think we're, what, superior Christians in some way. I think that tendency is within all of us. We've all felt it before. But Paul says to work out your own salvation. You go figure out how to be like Christ in the circumstances that God has given you. You don't worry about other people's salvation. That doesn't mean you don't go witness. It means you don't try to work their salvation out for them. And we talked about that from Luke 13. That was a few weeks ago. I don't know how long ago. Uh, but when Jesus is told of Pilate, when Pilate slaughters the Jewish worshipers, and they're going, Jesus, can you believe this? And Jesus says, repent, right? You go obey. Yes, that's terrible, but you work out your own salvation. You repent. So there's a figure your own salvation out here in verse 12. And again, the encouragement is verse 13. As we struggle with these decisions... We don't know exactly what to do, what route to take. As we struggle with that, God is giving us the will and the ability to be faithful to Jesus. It's God who works in us. But that doesn't mean we don't have to work as well. We have the power of God to work, but we have to do something. We have to work out our own salvation. 
So verses 12 and 13 are about the need for believers to obey God in everything. Every part of your life is a reflection on your salvation. Christians don't get to divide up what my Christian life is and what my, the rest of my life is. Your whole life is wrapped up in the implications of your salvation. So believers should obey God in everything, also knowing that it is God who works in us. And part of that obedience, part of that working out of our salvation, what it, what it looks like, uh, part of that is verse 14. Right? To obey, how? Without grumbling or complaining. Or some translations as the ESV has, without grumbling or questioning. Now, the question is, why does Paul highlight that sin here? Right? Of all the sins that he could have said, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but don't do this. He could have used any number of sins. Why does he single out grumbling and complaining? Well, I think that grumbling and complaining, or a lack thereof, is a clear, good mark of our obedience to God. Your complaining, grumbling level whether it be high, whether it be low, is a mark of how we are working out our salvation. If we're doing it well, there will be little grumbling and complaining. If we're doing it poorly, there will be lots of grumbling and complaining. So if you are working out your own salvation with fear, with trembling, then you will not be a person who makes a habit out of grumbling or complaining. That's the idea here. Because If you read through your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God is not a fan of grumbling and complaining. You remember Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. What is it that got them in trouble over and over again? It was complaining, specifically complaining against God. And I think the point here, in context of what Paul is experiencing, right? this is a prison epistle, he's in prison, what he's been saying is that Sometimes God's providence, so sometimes what happens to us, many times, it doesn't look like what we want to have happened to us. So God's providence, you could say our circumstances, you could say your salvation isn't always what you'd like it to be. In fact, maybe sometimes, maybe even most of the time, God's providence, maybe in one specific area or a few, God's providence is the exact opposite of what we want. What do you think about Israel struggling in the wilderness all those years? That was hard. That wasn't easy. Forty years in the wilderness was far from ideal. They didn't want to do that. Let me think about it. God rescues them from slavery only to wind up lost in a desert. No water, no food. For 40 years, you can imagine some Israelites saying, what kind of salvation is that? Right? Nobody would choose that kind of salvation. Is that what it means to be God's people? His ancient, beloved people? We go from 400 years of slavery to be rescued for 40 years in the wilderness? Or even take Paul's circumstances here in Philippians. Paul's faithful, disciple to Christ. He hasn't done anything wrong when it comes to you know, being a criminal. And yet, he's in prison. He's suffering. 
That's what his salvation has gotten him. That's God's providence for Paul. That's not a great thing to experience. And Paul said, back in chapter 1, verse 29, that the Philippians themselves are suffering for Christ's sake. And the point is that God's provision, his providence, isn't always pleasant. And, maybe more importantly, it isn't what we would choose for ourselves. I mean, just take a moment and think about your own life. Something is wrong in your life, right? You have something hard in your life, some aspect of it that's not good, by your standards, not by other people's standards. You evaluate every area of your own life. You might say, largely I'm doing okay, but there's an area. Maybe it's career, maybe it's financial, maybe it's health-oriented. It might be relational, some relationship that you have that's not going well or has ended. Maybe it's a family member, a grown son or daughter, spouse, a co-worker. Some part of your life is far from ideal. And what do you feel when you think about that? When you focus in on that one part of life that is no good, is it not natural to think, is that really God's provision for me? I'm a child of God, and that's what he provides. And so knowing that or experiencing that, being lost in the wilderness for 40 years, languishing in prison, what would be the natural response? What do we often do when our circumstances are no good? We love to to talk about it, to tell other people about it. We grumble, we complain, we question, just like Israel did. Israel had some real problems. They didn't have the things that they wanted. Water, meat, too much manna. So they grumbled. And the point is, that's just the natural response for us when things don't go our way. When circumstances are difficult, when our lot in life, in a certain area maybe, when it isn't good, when we think God's providence isn't pleasant enough, we complain, whether it's out of our mouths or whether it's just in our hearts. And it's important to remember, because grumbling is such a natural response for us, that just like in the wilderness, our complaining about our circumstances is really complaining against God. We might think we're just complaining about other people or about the traffic or about whatever circumstances we're facing. But Exodus 16 is clear. Moses says it's not him that Israel is complaining against. It's God that they are unsatisfied with. The salvation, the rescue, the provision that God has provided isn't good enough. So they complain. Now, before we get to the antidote for complaining, uh, which Paul makes his way to in verses 17 through 18, Paul gives us some insight into why we should stay away from the desire to complain. Why is complaining bad? Why doesn't God like it? Is it just on the list of things that God doesn't like? It annoys him? No. One of the main reasons that Paul gives for the Philippians Not to complain is because they live in a twisted, wicked generation. That's verse 15. That's what Paul says. And to stand out, to stand out among the darkness as lights, as Paul says, they must not complain. 
So what's the uh, inference there? You cannot complain or you cannot be a complainer. Obviously, complaining, repent, don't do it. But one who consistently complains. You can't be a complainer and be an effective witness, a light for Christ. I mean, that's just fundamentally. Grumbling and complaining destroys our witness for Jesus. Right? We remember that Jesus calls us to the same. Right? In Matthew 5, he calls us to be the lights of the world, or the light of the world. Why does he do that? What's the purpose of being the light of the world? So that men may see our good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. It's a witness to, our, to the glory of our Father in heaven. We are the light to the world as we bear witness to the glory of God. And that light, that witness to our Father in heaven, is lost, it's compromised, when we grumble and complain about our circumstances. And at the heart of it, the reason you cannot grumble and complain, or you shouldn't grumble and complain, is that you can't complain and be thankful at the same time. In fact, so not only does grumbling and complaining destroy our witness for Christ, really it betrays a deeper issue of ingratitude. Grumbling and complaining is ingratitude against God. Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. That betrayed didn't mean that they were supposed to say, oh, this, these circumstances are awesome. I love it out here. Uh, lots of sun. They weren't supposed to pretend like it was good circumstances. They're, they're, they're grumbling. It betrayed their true feelings that they were not thankful for their deliverance. They were not thankful for their salvation. They weren't thankful to be married, to be wedded to God in a covenant. They weren't grateful for his law. They weren't grateful for his presence. If they were, then they would have gotten on okay with the inconveniences of the wilderness. Still an inconvenience, but it wouldn't have been so bad. And the same is true for us. When we grumble and complain, we are revealing that you are not thankful for what the Lord has done for you. And there is nothing like being unthankful that destroys our witness for Christ. And interestingly, Paul links grumbling and complaining with the wickedness of the world. So Paul is essentially saying that to shine as lights for God in a wicked world, to be an effective witness for God, you cannot be a people who grumbles and complains. You need to stand out as a light from a twisted, wicked generation. So what does that seem to suggest? Well, that the wicked, twisted generation is characterized by grumbling and complaining, right? Because to stand out in a wicked world as lights, you don't complain. The world complains. The world grumbles. Those who are in Christ don't, or you do the opposite. The world complains, which, as we said, is ingratitude, not being thankful. That is a defining characteristic of a wicked generation. Ingratitude leading to grumbling and complaining. And so what I want to do really quickly is try to tie all this together from verse 12 through verse 15 or 16. Um, so a world that is wicked and twisted grumbles and complains. Because as a Christian, as a light, we don't do that. And we said, a people that grumble and complain are fundamentally unthankful. And a people who are unthankful 
are unwilling to take responsibility for themselves. Remember, that's what the whole work out your own salvation means, taking responsibility for our own obedience to God. So grumbling reveals ingratitude, and ingratitude manifests itself in refusing to take personal responsibility. And that is exactly what is played out in the wilderness with the evil, wicked generation. Right? This is a generation that God said he loathed. Right? That's in Psalm 95. God loathed that generation for 40 years. That's the, what, the archetypal example of a wicked, twisted generation. If God loathes you, then you're pretty wicked. And what was that generation in the wilderness always doing? Grumbling? Yes. But what, 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 what else were they always doing? Blaming someone else. Either Moses or God was at fault. Right? All of the troubles that they faced, and that was not their fault. It was someone else. Mainly, it was this man Moses who brought us out here in the wilderness just to kill us. A wicked generation is marked by grumbling and complaining that leads to blaming the world for its problems, blaming God for its problems. And if you want further proof of that, then just look around at our culture. We live in a time of severe ingratitude. And you know that because everybody is always complaining. Complaining about something. Someone is always mad at something or someone. I mean, think about it. Life nowadays, we'll say in the West, but life nowadays, by any metric that you want to use, any way you want to measure the quality of life, whether it's world poverty, birth mortality rates, life expectancy, world hunger, any metric you look at will tell you life has never been better for humans. I read a statistic that there are more fat people than there are starving people. One of the problems with our world is we have too much to eat. Life has never been this good for humanity. And I'm talking about comparatively here. I don't mean there's no problems. I mean, compared to any other time in history, there has never been a better time to live than now. You would think a culture that's experiencing that would be grateful, a little bit grateful, and yet everyone is always complaining about something. Griping is a virtue. Rioting is a virtue. You should go do that. In fact, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in context I think it bears repeating, that one of the seven deadly sins uh, that the church has long recognized as a sin is the sin of envy. That has always been understood as a destructive thing. And the Bible speaks all throughout against envy. And one of the main reasons that you shouldn't be envious is because envy creates an unthankful spirit. Envy is looking at what other people have instead of being thankful for what you have. You remember that's what Israel does. They're always looking back to Egypt, not looking at what they have now. They want what someone else has, what they used to have. Envy is complaining that other people have it better than us, which means we're not thankful for what we do have. It's the sin of the Tenth Commandment, coveting. Right? That's envy. It's always been considered a destructive bad thing. And yet, 
nowadays, envy, is lauded as a chief virtue. It's a good thing. Of course, people don't use the word envy. They use the word social justice, which, of course, is just a current modern form of envy. I mean, the whole modern concept of social justice is built on other people have, other people are, I am not, I do not have, therefore down with that group of people, the rich, men, white people, police, Western civilization, capitalism, whatever. It's envy at its core. It's an unwillingness to be thankful for what we do have, to be thankful for someone else, what they have. And that ingratitude comes out as grumbling and complaining. It's the whole sermon, the idea that Dr. Rogan preached about last week in the morning service with this whole cancel culture. That's grumbling and complaining about someone else, what they've said, whatever, which stems from envy. Now, that's a, a virtue in the form of social justice. That's how twisted our generation has become. So, how do we combat that? Well, we do what Paul says. We do the opposite. We are lights in the, dar in the darkness. We don't continue on in that vein. How, the, how Christians, how the church combats this is by being thankful. By rejoicing in the Lord's provision. And that means rejoicing even if you're in prison. Even if you're suffering. We respond not with grumbling and complaining, but with thankfulness, which leads to joy. That is how we are lights in a dark world. By giving thanks to the Lord and rejoicing in him. Like that's, in essence, what Paul says in verses 17 and 18. He says, even if he's being poured out like a drink offering, right? even if he's being sacrificed for God, for the kingdom, he still rejoices. He still has joy. In verse 18, he calls the Philippians, regardless of their circumstances, he calls them to rejoice as well. And that's what I'm calling the antidote to complaining. Joy or rejoicing. And remember, joy is not a feeling. Joy is not an emotion like happiness. Joy is a state of being. Joy transcends suffering and miserable circumstances. And all throughout this book, right? get it into our minds, this book is written from prison. All throughout the book of Philippians, Paul talks about rejoicing. Chapter 1, verse 4, making his prayer with joy. Verse 18, rejoicing that Christ is preached regardless. Verse 19, rejoicing even in prison. Verse 25, joy. Chapter 2, verse, verse 2, joy. Verse 17, rejoice. Verse 18, rejoicing. Verse 28, rejoicing. Verse 29, joy. Chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That's the central, uh, a central theme to this book, a book that's written by a man who's suffering. And yet, despite all the adverse circumstances Paul faces, he has joy. How? Well, if you flip forward to chapter 4, verse 10 specifically, and, and, and going on, joy comes from a thankful spirit. That's how you can have joy 
in the midst of, the, of, of suffering. That's how you can be a light in the midst of darkness. Right? That's how Paul ends the book. In verse 10, he says, he rejoices in the Lord greatly. And then what's the result of that? Because of that, he's, a, he's content in any circumstance he finds himself in. He can do all things through Christ because he rejoices in the Lord. So his joy, his contentment are inseparable. His joy in Christ makes him thankful. And that is the antidote to complaining. Being actively thankful for the life that you share in Christ. That is how we can rejoice, truly rejoice, in any circumstance. That's how we can rejoice with others instead of being envious of them. So, if you want joy, if you want the joy that only Christ brings, if you want the joy that transcends any problem that you have, then cultivate a thankful spirit. Be content. Find things in your life that the Lord has done for you and thank Him continually. And regardless of how hard, bad it might be. Mainly, be thankful for the love of God that you have in Christ. The love that cannot be taken away from you. And then you can say with the psalmist, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Not because your circumstances are good. Not because you are good. You give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's steadfast love does endure forever. And let's be thankful for that this day. And let's rejoice in him always. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you, God, that we do have uh, an eternal hope that cannot be taken away from us. That our circumstances uh, can't undo for us. And God, we ask that the the eternal promises, your steadfast love, that that is the basis for our hope and our joy. God, create in us a a thankful heart where we can um, praise you, thank you, God, for all that you have done for us uh, through your spirit, through Christ. God, we thank you and we praise you for, for your love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.